Morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark's Gospel, the 12th chapter, Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. If you're worshiping from home, Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44 this morning will be our text. Last week, uh, Brad Gowing, our executive pastor, shared a powerful word from the great commandment. And as Danielle and I, along with our family, we were able to be out for a few days and have a good time away. But I was blessed to hear that message and to be able to worship uh, at home uh, there watching uh, via our live stream. And one of the things I was thinking about as we were coming to this passage this morning was sort of the, the how many of you would cl- categorize yourself as a, a people watcher of sorts. Any people watchers here? We've got a, we got a few that just are raising their hands here, a little, little uh, hesitantly, but I, I see you there. I see that hand. I see that hand. And so uh, Mark chapter 12 gives us a little bit of a vignette, a, a story that is a, a unique story of Jesus as a people watcher. Now, I'm, I told you, I'm not much of a people watcher, really. There's just not a whole lot of time in my life where I find myself in the same place, watching people come and go. Usually it's just, I'm headed to the next place. And so I'm not as reflective probably as I need to be at times. But there are certain seasons, and usually it involves some type of air travel where I have to get to the gate and they're waiting. I have a book in front of me, but there's just so many people coming and going. It's hard not to watch. It's hard not to watch the the circumstances of people's lives unfold before you. It's hard not to be distracted by the the mother to my left who is trying to comfort her crying child. And I think to myself as I'm waiting to board the plane, I hope I'm not sitting next to them. And then to my right, I see a, a young couple. They have these kind of googly eyes. They're saying to each other, I love you. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. And, and I think to myself, oh, they're bound for their honeymoon. And equally, I think to myself, I hope I don't sit next to them either. And uh, so, but there are times where we're in these settings where we're people watching. And Jesus in Mark chapter 12 is in the equivalent in, in that Jewish world of a first century airport terminal with people coming and going there in the temple in the midst of Passover season. And we see the one time where I feel that Jesus is just watching the people. But, but he doesn't just watch their external actions, but he, he peers into their internal motivations. He, he peers into their hearts. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, the word of the Lord to us this morning. He, being Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow, she came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. Now, Jesus is headed to the cross. 
This is going to be his final earthly act there in the temple. The, uh, Golgotha is before him. The cross is at the, at the forefront of his ministry in the next chapters that we're going to read. But in this moment, he's in the temple. He sits down at, at, across from the treasury. Now, you need to understand in that first century Jewish temple, there are 13 treasury chests. And each of them was sort of an inverted trumpet that, that people could put their offerings into. And each of these 13 chest offering boxes have a, a description upon them, a, really an inscription on them to describe what the offering was for. So you'd have six of these chest offering boxes that would say free will offering. You'd have one that would say old shekel dues, new shekel dues, bird offering. And so all of the men and women that are coming for Passover, they're bringing their offerings and Jesus watches the rich parade their wealth before the crowd. Now this isn't an indictment to all who are wealthy, who are giving, but it is an indictment to the motivation of these that Jesus observes. It is an ostentatious scene. They, they are giving to be applauded. You can imagine them just dragging their money behind them. The, the, the coins clicking and clanking behind them as they drop each one as a show. Look at our faithfulness. You can almost imagine the crowd sort of clapping for them, but Jesus peers into their hearts and he sees that their motivation is not the purity of heart. Now, no one else sees who is really the protagonist of the story. No one else sees the heroine of this story here, which is this poor widow. But Jesus does. Jesus takes notice that she stops and she gives her two copper coins, which is all that she has to her name. And you need to understand in that first century world, to be a widow is to be, a, is, is to be as, almost as destitute as you possibly could be. It would, it would have been a plight that was unthinkable because there is no social network to fall back upon. Many widows within that first century world would have to revert to prostitution just to survive. So this woman is doing something that is of extravagant faith. Now, no one would have seen that and known that because only Jesus can see that as he's watching these people go by and see into their heart, the rich, and see into her heart, the poor. And that really is the heart of the matter, isn't it? It's the heart of her gift. It's the motivation that she gives by. Now, she only gives two small copper coins, if you're reading the King James Version, what is the translation that you have? It, it is the widow's mite. It is the lowest and least valuable of Roman currency of that day. She gives nothing from a financial perspective. But do you hear me? She gives everything. The temple, the temple doesn't pay its dues for the next year through her gift. The crowd is impressed by the rich. The crowd is impressed by the show of wealth. Jesus is impressed by the size of her heart because she gives out of an abundance of gratitude and faith in her God. And what do we learn? What we learn from this passage is, is that Jesus looks at the heart of the giver more than he does the amount of the gift. That when the heart is right, the amount will follow and be right. 
that Jesus looks at the heart. Now, the question then that is upon us is what is the heart of your giving? What is the heart of my giving? What is the motivation of our life? Now, when you are writing your mortgage payment, you're writing a check, it's being drawn out, uh, automatically drafted from your bank account, I can assure you your mortgage lender could care less about your heart. Do any of you write, if you're still writing checks, do any of you, when you write a check to the electric company, do you put in the memo line, given from the abundance of my heart? No, I mean, none of you do that. No, no lender, no company could care. They, 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 they do not care about the motivation of your heart when you give, but that's not the case when we give to the cause and the work of the Lord. Our heart is everything. Paul is, the Apostle Paul is writing in, in this sort of, this height of, of spirit-inspired poetic genius in what we know is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as he talks about giving, he says this, if I give all that I have, if I give it all away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. We have the privilege, you, me, we, we have the privilege to give to the cause of the Lord in and through the work of what he is doing here at Dawson. We have the privilege to give to the cause of Christ and other gospel-centered, mission-minded organizations that we have the privilege to support. And the amount of what we give is not as important as the heart of how we give, the state of our heart. How do we give? Do we give to the Lord out of a spirit of guilt? We've got to do it. Do we give to the cause of Christ out of a spirit of, well, I've got to pay my dues? Do we give to the cause of Christ to, to be renowned? To be remembered? Or are we given out of a spirit that is in line with the spirit of this widow here? She gives all that she has in a complete show of her dependency upon God as her supplier. And you know what Jesus does? He says, Peter, James, John, all the disciples, come sit next to me. You can't miss this. And we don't know her name. This literally, this penniless widow that has two small copper coins she's immortalized in the canon of scripture because of her faith and jesus says she's an object lesson now the disciples their temptation would be give out of the abundance of our riches here that certainly the people that should be celebrated are those that gave so much so much and jesus he upturns their expectations and he says look at her she was a walking parable because, because Jesus, in just a few moments, in the chapters ahead of us, he will give his all as she is given her all. She, he will give through the cross all that he is and all that he has to pay. Jesus has paid it all, all to him we owe. Jesus puts in his two copper coins of his life for your salvation and for my salvation and he through her is foreshadowing the destination of his life that he will give it all but more than that he is saying will you follow the path of this widow 
in light of what I will give to you, I will pay my all. What are you not willing to part with in pursuit of me? What part of your life are you holding on to? He is literally saying that to the disciples in this very moment. He is saying to them, she put in both of the coins. Some of you are going to be tempted to hold back a coin. Some of you are going to be tempted to hold back your life. But to be a follower of me, you must die yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily. He is saying that to the disciples, and guess what? He is still saying that to us as his disciples today. And the temptation, the temptation for your life, the temptation for my life, the temptation for the disciples is always to travel down the default path of moderation. When we start talking about things like this, giving Jesus our all, it, it works when we sing it on Sunday morning, but for most of us, the majority of our life, we really don't want it to be the chorus of our life Monday through Saturday. So it's easy to say, I surrender all. I'm not going to sing it for you, I assure you, but I can give you the lyrics, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. But living that out, the song of our heart is more like this. Jesus, I give you what's left over. But I really, you, you don't want me to be fanatical. You don't want me to go overboard in my faith. You don't want me to really give you my all. You don't want to have access to every part of my life because what that, that is a path that's just too radical. Our default position is, is always going to be a position of moderation. We want to be moderate in our faith and pursuit of Jesus. How many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's book called The Screwtape Letters? It's a wonderful book. It's a fictionalized account between this veteran demon tempter by the name of Screwtape giving wisdom to his nephew, this young novice tempter, this demon by the name of Wormwood. And screw tape, the whole screw tape letters are this imaginary correspondence where the veteran tempter is giving advice to the novice tempter, the new tempter. And there comes a, a place where he talks about the role of pursuing with the, the human subject, the role to put before him or her the place in the role of moderation. Listen to what Lewis says through this imaginary correspondence. Talk to him. You see it on the screen. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us devils as no religion at all and much more amusing. I think Lewis, in many ways, is, is channeling John in exile on the island of Patmos when he's writing to the church at Laodicea, and he talks about, I, I have this against you. You're neither hot nor cold, lukewarm, and God spews you out. Here we have a widow who is an example of our very Savior, she gives all, understanding that Jesus gives his all to us. You know, if Jesus lived out a religion of moderation in all things, he would have been a friend of the Sadducees. 
You don't get crucified for this, but as we look at Jesus, he's not moderate in any of his claims. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His claims are all pervasive as he calls us to full-throated, full obedience to him. And this is the reason that he was crucified, because he was so threatening to the religious establishment of the day. And he continues to call us past convenience. He continues to call us past our comfort. He continues to call us from the safety of the banks of familiarity and to the depth of obedience where he and he alone is leading us through the power of the Spirit. He wants all of you. He wants all of your thoughts. He wants all of our habits, our dreams, our family pursuits, our work, our resources, our time, our gifts, our pursuits, our goals. All of this wants to be under the umbrella of his lordship. None of it we hold back from him saying, here's your share, here's our share. It is all his in gratitude because he has paid it all, all to him we owe. I told you at the outset of the sermon that we got away for a few days Going to the beach, we hadn't been to the beach in uh, three years now. So we're socially distanced, we're isolated, we got all of our food, brought it back to the condo, all those kinds of things. We wanted to be responsible in the midst of this, but at the same time, it was really good. For those of you that don't know me, I have three uh, teenage and uh, a younger, or two teenage boys, and then a younger son who is eight years old. And so over the last years of going to the beach, it's been a lot of work. This is the first, do you remember this when you're, when you go to the beach and you have really young kids and you and your spouse have to take a week vacation after the week vacation going to the beach? I mean, it is a lot of work to take little kids to the beach and to haul all of their things and load it up. And so needless to say, I, I wasn't really, uh, we had had enough beach time, but we were really glad to get back to the beach. When your kids are really young, one of the things that happens with them is you have to convince them that the, the vastness of the ocean is not something that it's going to be overwhelmingly scary for them, but it's going to be fun. When they're really, really little, they'll come right out to the edge, and the tide of the ocean is coming in, and they might have their foot out there, but as soon as it comes, they back up away from it, lest it just sort of grab them by the legs and rip them out into the ocean. You know, they're fearful. They're fearful of the water. And so when your kids are little, you're, you're picking them up. And you're running them out into the ocean. And you get to the place where the, where the waves come crashing over you, and you, you hold them tight, and the, the, the water, the salt water sort of stings their eyes, and they gasp for their breath, but you're reassuring them in the moment, you're okay, I've got you. You're saying to them, this is a lot of fun. This is a lot of fun. And they're like screaming their heads off. And you're like, I assure you, it's really fun. It's really fun. And then they, they build a little bit of courage, don't they? If they're two or they're three, they'll go to the edge of the water and the water comes in and instead of running away from it, they'll stick their toe into it. And they'll get a little bit further into it and they'll let the, the sand under their toes just sink from below them. And then this year we went. This was the first year that as soon as we got out into the to the ocean waters we were setting everything up and all three of our boys they just run headlong reckless 
into the water. And then they just dive headfirst into the waves and they're playing and they're laughing and the water's coming in over them, taking their breath away, knocking their feet out from under them. And they get up and they stay out there. And I look to Danielle and say, we're, we're in another season of, 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 of raising kids. And we get out there and, and we're there as a family and just the, the vastness of the ocean being knocked down and having to get up and have a little bit of that salt water that you're coughing up and you go back in and it's just, you, you, you're fun because you're overwhelmed by something that is so vast and so much larger than you. No horizon in sight. God's calling you into the vastness of the ocean of obedience. And so many of us, we only come to the edge wanting to stick a toe in. As soon as the tide comes in, we run away. So many of us, God promises us the vastness of the ocean of obedience. He's calling us into the deep and we settle. We settle for what we know. We settle for the comfort and the convenience. He, he promises us the vastness of, of the risky faith before us, but we want to settle and we say, God, I would rather stay back in the condo and binge on Netflix than to experience the vastness of what you have before me. So many of us are holding portions of our life away from the purview of his lordship. We're saying, here's my coin for you and my coin for myself. What part of your life is off limits to the lordship of Jesus Christ? What habits what practices? For some of us today, taking that step of obedience into the vastness of the ocean that God would have for us is, is coming to that place in our life where we realize that only He is the true Savior. For some that are here today, it is realizing this very morning that only Jesus can save. And so you repent of sin and you turn to Him and you say, all to you I give, save me from my sins. For some of us who are followers of Jesus in this very sanctuary or, or we're, we're worshiping at, at home this morning, there, there are aspects of our life that we're holding back from him. And for some of us, it might be the comfort and even the convenience of our family dynamic as we have it. It's been a whisper of the Holy Spirit in our ears and in our soul for, well, maybe it's weeks, maybe it's months, maybe it's even years, and we've been discerning this, and God is calling us, maybe calling you, to that next step of obedience that looks like fostering, that looks like adoption, but you say to him, not yet. Maybe you're tempted to say, never. And God today is saying, put Put both coins in. Maybe there's some of you, the, the burden of the lostness of our world, billions of people that live in places that are unevangelized, unreached, 
and God has been stirring in your soul a burden for the lost that looks like you living and working in places where people do not know his name. And the glory of God is not renowned. And so God has called you, he has stirred you to the the deep parts of obedience, to the hard places, the difficult places. Maybe that's the summer of your life as a college student. Maybe it is your early life as a couple. Maybe it's your family life, all of your life going to that place. God is calling you to take that next step of obedience. Will you put those two coins in? Maybe you're here and this time of pandemic has, has, has been a, a true time where you've realized that your marriage has been centered on things that ultimately pass us by. We've tried to, maybe you think, I've, I've tried to center my marriage in romance. I've tried to center my marriage in, in financial feasibility. But all of that are moving targets. All of that is not holding. The center is not strong. And God is calling you as a couple to put in two coins of obedience. That Christ and Christ alone will be the center of your marriage. And maybe today that next step of obedience is coming before your bride and saying, let's join hands. We've done it enough our way. Let's today start asking God to renew a love in our marriage. To be able to birth forgiveness in our marriage. A passion and a love that has eluded us for months maybe years. I don't know what that next step of obedience looks like, but this I'm sure of. He is calling you to dive in. He he is calling you to run into the vastness of his will. He is calling you to jump in head first. The waves at times will knock your breath away, but the current of God's will will always lead us to our good and his glory, even when we don't know where he is leading. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Will you put in, through the power of the Spirit, those two coins, all that you have? all that you are. He's done it. Will you? Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this morning in gratitude for what you have given to us. You have paid it all for our salvation. So we realize in gratitude, in response of what you have called us to through your Son, You're asking us to to have no parts of our life that are off limits from your lordship. That our parenting, our work life, our marriage, our resources, the way we spend our money, what we do, all of it comes under your umbrella, your lens that examines our heart. So I pray today that all of us that are here would look deep through the power of your spirit into the next step of obedience that you would call us to. May we put in both coins of our life in obedience to you and in response of all that you've given for us. 
that we worship you in spirit and in truth even today as we seek to follow your will. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.